You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step by step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves if we let them. For this episode, I spoke to Sophia Bennett. Sophia was a strategy consultant and startup manager before turning to writing. She has published 10 books for teenagers, winning the Times Chicken House Children's Fiction Competition in 2009, and the Romantic Novel of the Year Award in 2017. The Windsor Knot was her first novel for adults, and Murder Most Royal, her most recent book, and the third in the Her Majesty the Queen Investigates series, is out now and available in all good bookshops. When we spoke, Sophia and I discussed what her life would have been like if she'd received an offer to work as assistant private secretary to the Queen, a job she was asked to apply for, but which ultimately went to someone a bit older. Along the way, we discussed what one wears to an interview at the palace, the bravery of female artists, the liberation that comes on the other side of menopause, and some very romantic trees. Hi, Sophia. Hello. Lovely to be here, Miriam. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me on My Unlived Life. It's a treat to have you. Um, This is particularly fun, A, because this is our last episode of the season, which makes it joyful and festive feeling. Uh, And B, because uh, we are going to explore a path for you that you have actually given quite a lot of life to um, in your series, Her Majesty the Queen Investigates. But it's an actual unlived path for you. Uh, It was a real possibility. And so I'm really excited to sort of uh, hear something about the series and then travel down this path and see how they line up. So to kick us off, do you think you could say a little something about the series, the most recent of which is out now? So there are three books at the moment in the Her Majesty the Queen Investigates series. Um, Two so far in North America. Third one comes out in September. Um, And uh, they star Queen Elizabeth II as a secret investigator, I guess. Um, And I try and make them as realistic as possible. I mean, I think there's there's kind of inherent comedy in imagining the Queen going around um, investigating crimes at various palaces and residences. Um, so they definitely have a, a comic hint to them. Um, and they are very British. And so in that those ways, I guess they're a little bit like the Thursday Murder Club books. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so I, I create a murder um, somewhere where the, the queen happens to be at the time. And then off she goes and investigates. And so far, one set at Windsor Castle in 2016, which is when the Obamas uh, visited. And one's at Buckingham Palace. And then one is at Sandringham at Christmas time. And a severed hand washes up on the beach. And the queen is the person who recognizes the victim from his signet ring. Well, clearly, in order to write these books, you needed a little bit of insider knowledge. Um, and so we're going to get a little sense of where that came from and what your life might have looked like if you'd gotten even more insider knowledge. So can you, to start us off, let me know, let us know uh, where we are in time as we come up to your path and what's going on for you in that moment? Well, um, okay, I should say that um, the Queen's um, sidekick in these books, um, who's based a little bit on Archie Goodwin in the Nero Wolfe novels, for anybody who knows those by Rex Stout, um, the sidekick is a 30-year-old 
Nigerian woman, well, of um, Nigerian heritage, who was a captain in the army, um, and her name is Rosie Ashodi, and she's the Queen's assistant private secretary, and she's the person who who goes around um, finding out facts for the Queen, and it turns out she's part of a sort of secret club of assistant private secretaries over time who've been helping the Queen since kind of the 1940s, really, um, solve mysteries. Um, And back in the late 1990s, um, I was asked if I would interview for the job of assistant private secretary. And that's why I chose this role, to be the sidekick. Um, And I was fresh out of a few years working with McKinsey, the strategy consultancy company. And I'd given up the job to do the thing that I'd wanted to do since childhood very badly, which was become a writer. And I'd just been too scared to to try and do it seriously up until that point. And then I'd read about a children's book that was coming out that everyone was very excited about, um, which was called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Um, and reading about that, that world kind of made me want to give up my job. So I, I gave up my job. I, um, I, I spent six months writing a book, um, A Murder Mystery, and it didn't get published. And I needed another job just to sort of get the money coming back in. And sort of in that time, um, I was asked if I would interview at Buckingham Palace for this job, working for the man who worked for the Queen, basically. I want to just backtrack quickly. Um, uh, You've sort of touched on it, but um, this idea of doing it seriously, of doing the writing seriously, what were you doing with the writing before then? You were obviously working full-time at McKinsey. Were you doing it at all? Were you doing it in dribs and drabs? Or were you just completely denying that it was part of your makeup? I felt like I wasn't living my true life. Um, I had this fantastic job. It was amazing at the time. I, I got to meet all sorts of very, very interesting people and travel, literally travel the world. And um, and and it was great in many ways. It was the job that a lot of people wanted coming out of university. And I'd, I'd done a PhD um, and, and I was very lucky to get it. But whenever people said, you know, what do you do? <laughs> I had that thing of, Okay, I'm about to say that I'm a management consultant, but inside I feel like I'm a writer, but I haven't written anything that's published. And it said, I think it said management consultant or something like that on my passport. And I I felt a bit of a fraud, even though that's what I was doing on a day-to-day basis. And I did do a lot of writing in my job the way a lot of people do. You know, I, I wrote up a lot of interviews and I wrote a lot of presentation packs and it helped tremendously with my writing. I have to say McKinsey taught clear writing very well. Um, but it wasn't the kind of writing of fiction and serious novels and things I wanted to do. Um, and I had had this idea of going to the University of East Anglia, um, where Ian McEwan went, for example, and doing a creative writing course there. But I, I was just too scared to even apply uh, at any stage. I just thought I just won't get in. Who wants to read my writing? Um, mm. So it took until I was I was in my late 20s by this stage um and and really thinking it's kind of now or never really I've got to I've just got to give it a go okay all right and so you took the plunge and in this period when you when you were going for it um you end up interviewing for this now why you why did they think that you were a good fit for this job well, and why did you think you were a good job? <laughs> I, um, what had happened was when I was looking around for, for jobs to keep me going, so I, I, you know, I'd written this book, um, it, had, it had got some, um, P.D. James's editor liked it. So that made me think, well, maybe I was onto something. Um, and I wasn't told it was terrible, but nevertheless, it didn't get published. Um, and one of the jobs that I went for was to be a headhunter. And I really can't remember why I thought that would be a good idea. I think somebody must have told me. Um, and I didn't get the headhunter job, but one of the headhunters told me that, that sort of on the quiet, there's this job going at Buckingham Palace and we think you'd be good for it. And I think what they were doing was Buckingham Palace, the the, the Queen's private office, usually hired people from the civil service to go and work for her. But they were trying to expand their horizons and get people from industry. And they also thought, oh, well, maybe we'll be really radical and we'll go for somebody quite young. And for them, somebody who was nearly 30 was quite young. Um, I love that. Um, so I think that's why they they wanted to try me out 
I'm not sure they knew what my background was, but what my background was, was that uh, my father had been a general in the army. I think perhaps he, perhaps he was a general in the army at that stage. Uh, so I, I'd grown up as an army child. I'd traveled the world as an army child. Um, and um, a, and I was used to just having to throw myself into situations and deal with them, you know, change schools or be thrown into a, a party that my parents were throwing and just, just have to sort of, you know, chat up the guests and things. And and I thought I'd, I could be good at this. I'm, I'm good at taking on those kind of situations. And I'm used to the formality that perhaps um, that the, the palace would uh, would entail because I'm, I'm used to sort of army formalities. I was fascinated by by the Queen because, you know, we, we know her so well, but we don't know her at all because she didn't get interviews. And, and there was much mm-hmm. less known about her in the late 90s than there is now. I thought I had a real chance at this. Was the um, Was the interview process really rigorous or was it quite straightforward? I wouldn't say rigorous. This was however many years ago it was, and I don't even want to think. Um, it was charming, is what it was. Um, so I, I must have had to fill out various forms and CV and things, which I don't remember doing. Um, I do remember spending ages finding the perfect interview outfit. It was obviously the key thing. Um, it was a, a, um, a navy suit with a pleated skirt above the knee that I'd found in a in a, um, a secondhand shop in Knightsbridge because I couldn't possibly afford a proper one. And I got rid of it and I'll explain why. I loved it. I thought I looked really chic and it showed off my legs. And as I was walking across the forecourt in fairly high heels, because I did wear fairly high heels all the time, um, I thought, this skirt is just too short, isn't it? Yeah. I was walking past the the guardsmen in their bear skins and things and I was walking right towards the palace of my interview and just thinking, people don't wear short skirts to interview for the Queen, do they? So I had this, this lovely interview with the deputy private secretary and the keeper of the privy purse, because that's the kind of names that these people have. And I expected them to be quite elderly and patronising. And they weren't. They were younger than I was expecting and genuinely engaging. And they asked interesting questions. We had a lovely chat. And and I thought I'd done OK. Um yeah, and I was busy looking around at their amazing antique furniture in their office. And there was one interesting detail, um, which was that they had blast-proof net curtains at the windows. So it was this beautiful oh. office in a Georgian building, effectively. Um, but with these blast-proof curtains, because you just never know if someone's going to let off a bomb outside. And and there was that sort of just slight sense of danger, which for me as an army child was quite appealing, <laughs> actually, if anything. And then the next interview was was with Her Majesty. So, you know, uh, had, I, had I crossed the forecourt again, it would have been for them to introduce me to her. And if she'd said yes, then that would have been that, really. But you did not cross the forecourt again because after the first interview, that was it? That was it. They what very they said, you know, thank you, but no thank you. And the headhunter who suggested the job said, in the end, they changed their minds. They didn't want somebody who was as young as nearly 30. Um, they went for somebody older and they went, but they did go for the civil service. So they, they'd had this idea that they wanted to kind of break loose and try somebody in industry. But then having seen some people in industry, they decided that's not what they wanted after all. They decided um, they all run around wearing short skirts and they couldn't possibly. This is my theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there we are. So are you ready? To get a really cool job. Okay. 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 So here we go. So we've got to get you through the interview process. So you go in, you have your interview, you leave, they have a little chat. They decide you've done a really good job. And yes, you're a bit young and yes, your skirt is a bit short, but they'd quite like to see you back. And they call you back for the second interview. What happens next? Well, what happens next is I, I go back through uh, through those gates. And, and it's weird because with the first interview, I just assumed, you know, if you're, if you're going for a job, that there's a back door, you know, that you go through. And, and indeed, you know, there is a kind of side door to the palace. But but the one that I went in is is to the left of the to the right of the, the main gates. Um, so uh, I, did, I did absolutely have to go through the bit that all the crowd stand in front of and walk across the bit where the guards do the changing of the guard and everything oh wow so I would have walked back across that forecourt into that that corridor where the private secretary works and then I'd have been taken up in the lift to wherever her majesty was at the time one of her 
private sitting rooms or something. Um, and um, was her office maybe overlooking um, the kissing trees. And then I would have met the Queen and she'd already been told that I was the right kind of person. Um, and if she liked me, then that, that would have been that. I would have started work as her assistant private secretary. Okay, well, first off, what are the kissing trees? The kissing trees were planted by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert uh, back in the 18-somethings. And um, they were these two huge, well, they grew into huge plane trees. I think they are plane trees. Um, to the right side of the palace, but but slightly behind. And the Queen would have looked out um, over them from her office uh, and they, they they're called the kissing trees because they, they kind of grew into each other so they're planted either side of a path and then when they grew tall they, they kind of grew to, to meet each other and when I was researching many years later I I saw them um these lovely lovely reminders of Queen Victoria that's really beautiful I just want to get you back in that room with the queen really quickly what kind of questions does she ask you okay what does she want to know or does she just want to have a little chat well, do you know what she would do? She would put me at ease. She would know that I would be very nervous and she would not want me to be nervous. I don't think she would invite me to sit down. So I think it would be a standing interview at that stage. But she would make a joke. Um, if the dogs were there, she would kind of make a joke about them, perhaps include them in the conversation. Uh, 50 years before, she would have invited me to have a cigarette or something because that, that was the way that you kind of broke the ice with people, but but not more recently. Um, and and she would have done whatever it took to relax me. And then she, she probably would have asked if I had questions, I would have thought. And we could have perhaps talked about... Um, the, the travel aspect of it and, and moving around the, the different residences. Um, and I know that the job entailed a lot of organisation of her visits and things. We could have talked about that and how my experience as an army daughter would have helped. And I suppose we would probably have ended up talking a lot about the Gurkhas because that's the regiment that my father served with the most and she's very fond of them. So, yes, I think we'd have ended up talking about that, really, and my trip to Nepal, trekking and... Um, and having been in Hong Kong and, and my father serving with them there. Yeah, we'd had a nice military conversation, I should I should think. That sounds that sounds solid. So when you walk out, you feel okay about it after you leave? You feel like you've done a good job? I feel insanely happy that I've met this really lovely person and she lived up to my expectations. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and also I also hate myself because that's what I do. Uh, when, whenever I'm, I'm up for a big thing, whatever it is. I mean, l last night I, I was talking in a bookshop and I, I, I really, really, really enjoyed it. But like first thing this morning, I was thinking of all the things that I wanted to do differently because that's just the way I work. So yeah, oh. it would have been mixed feelings, but, but largely happiness. That's an interesting one, isn't it? That instinct to kind of, um, deride yourself after you've done something, especially after you've done something well to kind of. Yeah, I, I'm I'm pleased that I know it now. So I can kind of observe it from a distance and go, okay, this is happening. I know this. So I'm not one of those people who gets super nervous before something. Okay. Um, yeah, my, my brain saves all its negativity for afterwards. It's just it's just the way that it works. But you can see it from a distance in a sense that you don't necessarily get totally wrapped up in it and think it's truth. You just go, oh, I'm doing the thing. Yeah, I do now. Now, now that I'm in my 50s, <laughs> it's taken a while. <laughs> is that what it has helped you get there? Is just time or have you done any active work to because I think it's a not uncommon thing to do for high achieving people in general, probably high achieving women mostly. Um, well, do you know what? McKinsey was very good at that as what one of the things it, you know, it took a, what it called us all insecure overachievers. We were, we were generally, um, eldest children, insecure overachieving. And it, it kind of made us laugh at ourselves because we would look around the room going, surely not. It's like, yeah, yeah, no, me too. Yeah, no, absolutely me. Um, so yeah, that gave me a little bit of perspective. Um, and then I can tell you, going through the menopause is hugely instructive because your hormones just go through, you know, you think you've been through it all at kind of between 12 and 15 or whatever it is. And you think my body will never do this to me again. But no, no, it does do it to you again in your 40s or 50s. And you go through all of these emotions again. Um, and coming out the other side of that, it's like, 
nothing can phase me now, um, which is why I think you get all these incredibly feisty women of my age and older who are just like, bring it on, whatever it is. I've been through it. I can take it. So yeah, that's the stage I'm at now, I think. Oh, I love that. Well, I'm glad you've come through it. And, and the one thing I will say is the reason why is I didn't know what was happening at the time in my, in my early 40s. I suddenly got anxious again, and I'm not naturally an anxious person. And I assumed it was to do with my career, which was, I, I, I was a writer by then, which we'll get to, and, uh, and write, being a writer is always a struggle. And, and I assumed it was because of ISIS and all these world events, and I assumed my insomnia and anxiety were to do with that. And if somebody had said, no, 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 it's just your hormones, don't worry. <laughs> just work out a way of getting some sleep and you'll be fine. You'll come back to yourself again. It would have saved me literally years of heartache. So I wish I had known. But I think that that conversation is happening now. So thank goodness other women will be spared it. They won't be spared the insomnia, but they'll be spared blaming themselves for it, which I think is pretty huge, actually. I think that's massive especially for insecure overachievers. <laughs> it's so easy to get into the loop. It's like, I'm awake. It's my fault. What have I done? Oh, yeah, I did that thing. That's why. Yeah. And, and it's, now my brain goes, no, no, you're awake because you're hot. <laughs> Go back to sleep. I love that. I love that. It's so instructive. It's so instructive for so many different phases of your life. <laughs> um, okay. All right, let's get you back to the queen because we love her. Have you ever met the queen in real life? Can I just ask? No, I oh, have not. No. I have been in her proximity. Okay. So my father was given the MBE for his, his services to the army. And, and later he got the CB, which is the commander of the Order of the Bath, which is um, one below being knighted. So um, I, we watched him get that in Buckingham Palace from the queen. And that was obviously lovely. Um and um, I've been, you know, I've been in the crowd close by, but no, I haven't met her. So I feel like I've grown up with her, but I never actually got to shake her hand. Well, now, now, now you guys are hanging out. So um, do you get to shake her hand at the end of this interview or does she not? There's no touching yet. Uh, I, well, I, I think she tries to avoid shaking hands when she possibly can. Okay. She's uh, because um, of it, it makes her sound weird. But, you know, just because of germs, if your job is to meet several thousand people a year, then you try and wear gloves when you shake their hand, because otherwise you get colds and then you can't meet hundreds of them because you're ill and she couldn't afford for that to happen. So mm. handshaking minimized for that very practical reason. Um, so, I mean, I, I, there's a. Um, you kind of, you know, when you're dismissed sort of thing, and then you um, bow or curtsy slightly or nod your head or whatever it is, and then walk walk backwards out of the room. Um, so that, that's what I would have done okay. probably quite inelegantly. But All right. So you back away. Also, I, I completely failed to ask, which is just abhorrent interviewing on my part. What outfit are you wearing this time? Because you're not doing the short skirt. Um, hmm. I probably, oh, it's tricky. Um, so I, I'm, I'm married by this stage, quite recently married, and I could wear the, my, my going away outfit, which was a long skirted kind of mid calf length suit, but it's red. So I would have agonized about it. It's perfect shape and everything, but it is bright red. But then I, I might have gone for it. I might have thought she needs somebody who looks quite confident. So we'll assume mm. I'm in my red suit, I think. Okay. All right. Um, so you're married at this time. Is your husband excited about, about this possibility of a job for you? Um, yes. Yes, he is. Um, yeah, and that's an interesting thing. Well, not my husband anymore. I have a different husband now okay. um, who would have been equally excited. Um, but, but yes, I mean... One thing they would have both had in common is being supportive of that kind of thing. Yeah. All right. Well, let's see where we get to with all of that. You 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 back away from the queen. You go home to your first husband and you wait and then you get a phone call, presumably, or a letter. How do they tell you that you've gotten a job with the queen? What I found in life is if it's good news, you get a phone call. <laughs> and if it's bad news, you get a letter. <laughs> so I get a phone call. <laughs> right. All right. What do they say? Um, so they say, um, I've got the job and can I start and can I start sooner than I thought was possible? Because what I have found out, you know, through researching the palace and things is, um, 
there's an element of sort of expecting people to drop everything and just do what's required, largely because that's what people do. And and I would have done that quite joyfully. I had nothing better to do at the time. So, okay. So what's your first day on the job like? Um, so I'm shown to my lovely antique desk in my beautiful Georgian office, um, probably opposite the deputy private secretary's office. And I'm introduced to a whole array of people because there are literally hundreds of people working in different departments. Um, and Buckingham Palace is huge. It's got 775 rooms. Um, so there's an awful lot of scurrying about from, from side to side, uh, meeting people and working out who does what and trying to remember people's names. Um, and and then, and being being told what the job entails. Who are the people who are going to be your sort of core colleagues? Who are you going to see on a daily basis other than the Queen? So in my books, I simplified things. But um, in real life, she had a private secretary who was in charge of relationship with the government and communications and a lot of the important stuff. And then she had other senior people managing the palaces and things like that but private secretary who's who I'm working for and all the more political stuff goes through him which is what I would have been interested in um and then there was the deputy private secretary um and then there was so at least one assistant private secretary might have been two um so there'd be a core of us um in what's called the private office and we would be the people that the government would talk to um, and then funnily enough, none, none of those people, uh, it's a joke that I make in the books, are secretaries. So we, we were all kind of officials. Um, and then we would have had secretaries to do the, the kind of filing work and all of that kind of practical stuff, which I would have found quite intimidating because um, in my career, I was never really in charge of people. And I, mm. I didn't have training in how to tell people what to do. Um, and did you, I probably would have struggled with that at least to start with more than anything in terms of, you know, am I micromanaging? Am I delegating too much? Uh, am I over explaining? Am I taking too much for granted? Yeah, I would have made every mistake, I think, possible to make before I worked out how to do it well. Okay, but do you work it out? Do you think? I hope so. I mean, I think I would have brought a big joie de vivre to the to the job um and at the time I had had a very good work ethic and a very good memory so I would have been you know very trustworthy with things um I probably didn't have and this might be why they ultimately didn't give me the job if they'd worked it out I I didn't have huge confidence in myself to just to do something from scratch without help to just make it happen um because I had I'd rarely been given that opportunity so what might have happened and if it had it would have been fabulous would have been I'd have been given a few things to do and some of them would have gone less than perfectly which would have been awful at the time but I'd have survived people would have said hey do you know what that happened to me too or whatever I wouldn't have been sacked and I would have realized that you can actually take a risk and fail and, you know, get back on the horse and do it better next time. And I think ultimately it could have given me tremendous confidence to just get on and do the thing. But I am thinking that one thing I probably would have really struggled with is being asked to do something I thought was incredibly stupid <laughs> and then just having to get on and do it. Like what? Um, what might, what would well, one of those I don't know. Let's say, let's say a government department had a clever idea for something they wanted the queen to do. And it was decided that she was going to be gracious and do it. And I thought it was ridiculous. I think, I think I would have, um, I would have struggled to just make it happen elegantly. Um, and and if if there was something going on with the family side of things and I didn't think it was being handled well, really none of my business, but I think I probably would have let it be known what my feelings were <laughs> because I was, you know, my late 20s, early 30s. And um, I think the me, the me doing that job now would be would have a lot less um, mental focus for it, but but a lot more diplomacy. I mean, you know, at, at some point or another in your sort of late 20s, early 30s, you kind of have to experience that even if you're not working for the queen a little bit, right? You have to sort of, you have to learn those lessons about failure and you have to learn those lessons about not always saying what you think all of the time. 
I mean, it's interesting when you do become a writer, of course, is that uh, certainly you learn a lot about failure, a lot about failure. Um, but um, but you don't have to learn about diplomacy. That's kind of up to you. So, yes, that's, that's an interesting journey. So stepping away from the Queen for a moment in your real life after just so we can get a sense of your developing as a writer after um, your initial, you know, your book not working out, even though it was it was um, you had some nice feedback on it. Uh, what did you do next? You said you had to go back to work in order to make money, as we do. Yes. So for 10 years, I I bounced between um, being at home writing and um, having a, a job as a freelance consultant. Okay. Um, and, and what I'd learned at McKinsey was that what really made the difference between a project working or not was the people in the top team. If they trusted each other, it would work. And if they didn't, it wouldn't. And it really had nothing to do with the million pounds that it paid McKinsey to tell them what to do. Um, so I became very interested in the people and how they treated each other. And I, I became a knowledge manager. So um, my, my expertise came in how people gain and share knowledge from past projects and things and pass it on. Um, and I still think it's an incredibly important thing. And it was just as internet tools were just starting to be developed to make that happen. But what I couldn't do was do that and write in the evenings or the mornings. And I so admire the majority of people who do that. That's how they get their writing done. But I, I tend to be sort of really focused on one thing. So I would either be doing the job, kind of thinking about the job 24-7, or I'd be doing the writing. So let's say I'd do the job for six months or nine months or something, the project would come to an end. And then I'd I'd write for six months, write a book, submit it, have it turned down, and then off I go again. How many cycles of that before you had one accepted? And which one was it? Uh, about five five cycles of that. And ultimately, as I say, it took 10 years. And um, then the, the crash happened um, in 2008. And and I was really bad at marketing myself. I found getting these jobs very very difficult, and um, and to do it in a crash was just impossible for somebody like me. Nobody had any spare money in in the in the, the city to spend on people like me. And my I had a, um, a baby boy at home and a toddler, and my husband was very kindly uh, agreed to look after them. He um, he wasn't able to work. He'd had to retire early on medical grounds. Um, Sorry, is this your first husband or your second husband? Second one, okay. second husband. I'd swapped husbands in the meantime, and it was really interesting because I, I think we—he had a navy pension uh, that he would eventually get, although he didn't get it then, and he had his pension from his, the, the job he had to retire from. But we didn't really know how we were going to live. Um, we needed an income from me, and we just kind of took the plunge—just, just stupid optimism, I think. Um, and I went off to the library every day and I, I wrote a children's book that I'd had an idea for years before. And I told the story to my children in the car um, many times. So I wrote that and um, submitted it in 2008 to the Times Chicken House competition, um, which is run by the Times newspaper. And Chicken House is a publishing company run by Barry Cunningham. And he contacted me in the autumn of that year to say there had been 2000 entries and I was down to the shortlist. And um, I really thought, well, that's kind of it. I'm okay. Because even if I don't win, which I probably won't, this is a really big deal. And I know that I've got the persistence to make this happen. But anyway, <laughs> and then he rang back and I was in a shop. I remember I was, I was trying to uh, pay for a t-shirt. Um, and he rang back and said, yeah, you've won. Um, and that was a £10,000 publishing contract. So, yeah, so at that point, uh, in 2009, the book came out. That's when I became a fully-fledged author. And I remember I had to um, get a new passport shortly afterwards. And I could finally put writer on my passport. And it was one of the most exciting things. Okay. Well, speaking of passports, we're going to take you right back to... Uh, your job with the Queen, um, which uh, so you're you're sort of trucking along with it. You're learning the ropes. You're learning how to fail. You're learning how to be a bit more diplomatic. Um, but also, it this job does entail some travel. It, it requires you moving around with her. Where are you two going? What are you up to? 
Um, we spend um, a lot of springtime and several weekends in Windsor Castle. Okay. Um, and I have rooms there in some way, shape or form. I mean, literally hundreds of people work at the castle and they're all kind of tucked away round and about. And I should imagine my rooms are kind of Georgian or possibly even, you know, late medieval, uh, which I would adore. Um, and I'm, I'm quite used to kind of institutional life because I spent seven years in further education and all of that kind of thing. So it suits me very well. I'm very, very happy. And um, probably spending a lot of time apart from my husband in one way or another, but we both came from army families and, and we're kind of, we're, I think we're fine with that. And I, and I never had a problem with having a job that I felt was so important that it would require personal sacrifices. You know, I can imagine the people who join political campaigns, you know, and travel around with Obama or whoever it is, and you know, and they just they just throw their their private life on the scrap heap for a while because they know that that it's worth it for the bigger picture. I, I always kind of identified with those kind of people, so I'd be travelling around and 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 I'd be organising the Queen's trips further abroad, further afield. And in the nineties, I can't remember how much of that she did. Uh, whether she was still traveling to other countries. I think she was occasionally. So yeah, I'd be organizing trips to Scandinavia or whatever it might be and just making sure that every single detail was right. And I know that literally every five minutes is accounted for on one of these trips. And, you know, the, the queen will arrive, she will step out, there will be a carpet, there will be four of you arranged here, she will meet you in this order. Uh, you won't give her anything, she won't give you anything, she needs both hands free, you know, whatever it might be. Um, you know, and even the loo breaks are, are, are timed in. Um, and uh, yeah, it's fascinating stuff, but I'd have been kind of organizing all of that. And and being one of those people who, again, tries to put people at ease at big parties. So, you know, the queen's about to come, uh, she'll be joining you in a couple of minutes and then, you know, making a joke. So people were feeling slightly less nervous so that they could be on their best form when she arrived. That would be part of the job too, I think. How comfortable are you with those bits of the role? I mean, if, I feel like you would be fine with it in terms of that that sort of organ. Are you an organized person? Is that a thing you can do? Yeah, no, I, I'd be organized. I mean, it is it is interesting that um, I, I I would have had to, and and the, and the women who've had this job have had to do this. Um, you kind of have to impose yourself on the situation. I was told at McKinsey by by a partner that what I needed was gravitas, and that's always fascinated me. And and I go into schools and and now and and tell girls about this because um, I didn't know what he meant. I didn't really know what the word meant. And I looked it up, and it's like gravity. I needed weight. I needed heaviness. I needed presence, but presence in the terms of heaviness, effectively. I needed big shoulders. I needed to be six inches taller. I needed a deeper voice, um, and I needed to not sound so naturally enthusiastic. Um, and then I would have more weight in meetings, and um, and I think not having those things would have been interesting in terms of kind of bringing presence to a room when, when you need to be in charge. Um, and what, what I've learned is, you know, what, what you actually need to do is, is bring your strengths, whatever they are. And they're not always a deep voice and height. <laughs> um, um, and sometimes having enthusiasm and, and a quick brain and compassion, um, sometimes actually that's what's required. And I'm good at those things. And it's true. We are so um, indoctrinated with the idea that those sort of typically masculine things are the things which one needs in order to make their presence known and that that's sort of the optimal way to do it, right? Just sort of be bigger and heavier. I like the word heavier. That's great. And louder. It runs, it runs deep. It's so interesting that somebody can be really, really flying in terms of a meeting or or whatever it is. And then, and then somebody heavier <laughs> comes in and it's like oh no okay no now we're paying attention to them and it's 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 very natural women do it just as much as men do it um and it's not the fault I always go on to say of the heavier person they don't mean to dominate they just are who they are but that's just what we're naturally attuned to paying attention to but you know one of the people who's had to work out for herself how to manage that is the queen and I and now that I write about her I love it. I mean, she she was five foot four, but shrinking. I mean, by the time, by the end of her life, she was probably five foot nothing. 
and um you know and yes didn't have a deep voice she she had to learn how how to bring different attributes to one of the most you know um demanding roles in the world and she kind of made it look easy but it can't have been it's it's difficult and i think her sister margaret showed that it is difficult because she didn't have the same um she didn't have the same sort of level of presence i think part of what she did bring was a really good ability to listen and natural curiosity and compassion and all the things we learned about after she died. Mm. Um, and they actually turned out to be incredibly useful in her job. That's so interesting. I love that. And it's, yeah, those attributes really aren't given the same amount of weight. But as anybody knows who's in, in a room with someone who can really listen attentively, like that's who you want to be around. You want to be around the person who's curious and attentive. Exactly. And if, if they are, then, you know, if, if they ask you to do something later on, you do it. Yeah. <laughs> so how, first off, in your real life, when did your first marriage end? Just so we know we're tracking, does, was it? Um. So it ended in, the, so I'm trying to think so what well what happened was uh I didn't get the job what I did get was pregnant <laughs> ah. um and I wouldn't really have been able to do that I mean it was a very wanted baby um I, I tried very hard to have but I wouldn't have been able to try hard to have that baby I think if I'd had the job because I would have been dashing around everywhere and not seeing my husband very much and it just would have been unsustainable um and I wouldn't have minded. I would have felt that that was a, a reasonable choice to make. Um, so I wouldn't have had Freddie, which, you know, who's my about to turn 22-year-old. So, yeah, that wouldn't have happened. Um, so I, I, I had Freddie, but then various things, no, nothing too dreadful, but various things. And, and that marriage ended and then... I decided I was going to be celibate for 10 years and that would be completely fine and just be me and Freddie and we'd be, we'd be okay. And then literally like a week later, um, <laughs> I bumped into this guy at work who just kind of, well, he didn't sweep me off my feet. It took like a year to realize, for me to realize that he wanted to take me out to dinner. And then like a week after he took me out to dinner, it was like, okay, this is good. And then three weeks later, we kind of knew that we were going to get married. So yeah, that was quite, quite quick. And then a year after we got married, I had Tom, who is now 16, about to do his GCSEs. Okay. All right. So in your unlived life, you're, you're incredibly busy. You're away often. Um, you and husband number one didn't see each other very much, but he understands, you obviously understand you absolutely do not have the time or space or probably desire in that time to, to get pregnant. Um, what happens with your relationship? I honestly don't know. I really don't know. I think at the time it would have been completely fine because I would have been doing something that my first husband really admired um, and I think he would have been very happy, um, perhaps even too happy in a way, um, kind of leading his own life. Okay, well, let's figure it out. So you're, you do, how long do you do the job in its current incarnation, right? So we started you sort of in the late 90s, you were about to turn 30. Um, and you do this for how long? Organizing schedules, bopping around the country with her? Well, I don't know. Uh, because the job doesn't have a, a kind of use by date. I mean, at some point I would have had to ne negotiate with myself the whole job versus kids thing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, after a few years, uh, you know, I, I definitely would have felt my body clock ticking. Um, and I, what I would have tried to do was either adapt the role. That would have been an interesting conversation to have <laughs> or, or find another role still working with the queen in some way that would have enabled me to have kids okay let's decide um, what do you do um and I might have it all became complicated um if the role was going really well I might have stuck with the role because I really really did want children but I also wanted to make my mark on the world 
and and I always did feel that um that children weren't everything um and I I am never I'm not one of those people to ask even though with my step daughters I have four kids of my own I'm never one of those people to ask a woman you know oh when are you settling down when are you going to have kids I'm always really relaxed if a woman if her life is her job it could be that that's not what she intended it's just worked out that way or it could be that absolutely is what she's intended I think that's fine so let's imagine that I am um I'm I'm in this role and and maybe it's turning into other jobs in that kind of field of public service um and then eventually I'm single doing that um living in London in a nice little flat in Chelsea or something um that's not the end of the world that sounds all right to me how does it change and where are we we're gonna we're gonna say you're sort of mid-30s now and the the marriage we're assuming is just it's just sort of gone by the wayside you guys have realized that you're just apart all the time so what's the point so I don't know. So either either I just keep on doing that job and then ultimately I work my way up the ranks. Um but but I don't I don't think, you know, that the natural end of that is to become the private secretary. And I don't think I would ever have got that job because I, I never, as I say, I never had a senior management role. So I think I would have probably gone into the arts or something like that, because that's what I love. Or there could have been a different job um working for the queen in in some way perhaps there would have been some foundation or you know like like the queen's green canopy or something um these other things that the royals become patrons of yeah i could imagine that i i would have perhaps got a more senior role in one of those those other slightly more self-contained things Uh, and i would have loved that too i want us to confirm whether that's the case or not but first a crucial question is obviously this is years have you done any writing during this time Mm. Not fiction. No. Um, because as I say, it's kind of all or nothing. But mm-hmm. but I would have taken every opportunity to write for work. So if you know if a if a brochure needs doing, uh, you know, if if, if I needed to if papers political papers needed to be written to make a case or that kind of thing, mm. I would have very much I'd have, I would have been writing stuff that required a lot of um a very, very careful wording and communication expertise. I'd have been doing that, but no, it, w- it wouldn't have been stories. So is that what it feels like? Are you uh, are you uh, sort of senior level at one of these foundations? I think probably, yes. One one of the, the, the charities or foundations that the Queen, that's close to the Queen's heart. I'm try- if I could have combined it with the arts or architecture or something like that, I would have... Um, and it's interesting because, I mean, the Queen, she was patron of a lot of arts foundations. I, I suppose what I would be bringing is a lot of the things you do after that, a job like that is you bring the contacts that you've made. Um, you kind of, you know, people in, in certain places and they know you quite well and you can make introductions. And um, so I probably would have been playing that sort of a role more, I think. OK, so you're in one of these roles Let's just let's step aside and kind of look at the rest of your life for a little while. So you've you've got something, you've got some job that pays you. You've got your flat in Chelsea. Um, you're not all over the country anymore. What's your sort of social life like? Do you have a social life? I mean, you've been in this very very kind of cloistered universe for a long time. What? Who do you hang out with when you clock out at the palace? I have a really active social life okay. and I did throughout the job. <laughs> uh, that's one thing I can very much imagine. Um, a much more active social life than, I, than I've had in real life, in fact. have a decent amount of money. I've continued earning. I'm childless, we've decided. So, you know, it's all disposable income. Go me. Um, I have a low rent flat because um, I, I know somebody through the job who's got this little flat, you know, in Chelsea and they're very happy to give me a subsidized rate kind of thing. Um, and, um, and I've met all these incredible people through, through the opportunities of, um, of the, the assistant private secretary and, um, and so, yeah, I, I know this really, really interesting range of people and I love going out to the, to the ballet with them and, and off on trips to the countryside and they're introducing me to the opera and, um, and we're doing fun little kind of long weekends to, um nearby foreign places together and 
yeah, I should think it's really good fun, actually. Um, Sounds like loads of fun. Yeah, <laughs> I'm happy with that. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm hosting little dinner parties in my flat. Cool um, so you do that for a bit. You do your job, which is which is primarily contacts based. Um, I love this. I love this kind of web of sort of people that you've got now for your for your professional life, for your for your social life. You do that for a bit. What happens next? Um, gosh, so now I'm in my forties. If I, I mean, so what I what I might do is take a sabbatical year from whatever lovely job I've got, and and try and write the novel. Okay. Because um, it's always been on the back burner, I guess. Um, so I probably do that, but I can't write about anything remotely royal because you know that would just be not the done thing. Nobody does that. Um, I think partly out of genuine loyalty to people that they like and partly out of if you do you you're kind of cast out of the of the you know the, you don't get to go back to all the lovely staff ex staff events and things that they have and uh you, you know you're probably dropped from the the ex staff whatsapp groups and that would be not fun um so i write about something completely different um so what i might uh so i might do the I might go back to the book that I I had originally done that had failed, which is about um, a ballet dancer, um, and I might try and rewrite that better with sort of more time and experience. Um, and it was a ballet dancer who was a victim, and it was an ex prima ballerina who was the detective. So I might go back to that, and by that stage, I might even know some prima ballerinas, so you know I can I can get some um, some good input from them. So maybe I um, I do try and kind of triangulate to where I am now via the prima ballerina route. But what I don't know is just how difficult it is to get published. I mean, maybe what I end up then doing, if, if I like the writing, um, maybe I end up writing nonfiction oh. um, uh, through all my, uh, my contacts. I, I mean, having written nonfiction, I, I wrote this book called um, The Bigger Picture for the Tate Gallery about women artists. Um, and it, it was my favourite writing job ever. Um, it was very, very hard work to do lots and lots of research into 30 different female artists, but it was so rewarding. Um, what was so rewarding about it, aside from just the art? Well, just learning about their lives, really. Um, I was talking to um, a group of readers last night in a bookshop about this series, but also talking about the, my, my many lives as a writer and and having done this book and saying, I'm so proud of it because it's for really for um, ch children between kind of 10 and 15, I, I suppose. Um, predominantly girls in, in that it's about women, but I love it when boys read it too. And And I think to be a female artist is the bravest thing in the world because, I mean, as we've already said, you know, not being heavy is is an issue in itself. Um, and we know that women, you know, struggle and fall behind in, in so many ways. Um, and if you're an artist, if you're a good artist, you see the world differently from everybody else. And that's great. But it does mean that at some point in your life, you'll be told that you're wrong. Mm. You're alone and you're wrong and you're different. And to have the courage to think, actually, you're all wrong and I'm right <laughs> is huge. And you're usually poor because you're trying to do something that costs money and you're not getting any. Um, and the bravery that takes, I think, is really astonishing. And so to, to, to write about women who did that, you know, over and over again through history uh, and did it brilliantly and, and enabled us all to see the world in new ways because of the way they saw it, I just think is absolutely incredible. So I, I loved I loved researching that. I loved the women that I got to know through it. And, and I could imagine, you know, perhaps asking... Um, the the royal collections. If I could write books about aspects of that that interested me, May, maybe I'd become a sort of slightly different Lucy Worsley. <laughs> I love Lucy Worsley. What's I think not she's to amazing. love? She's amazing. Um, so yes, may, maybe I could have been a sort of slightly alternate track Lucy Worsley. That would be fun. But but what I think she does brilliantly is particularly now is, is highlight the roles of women in history. And she's just done this wonderful book on Agatha Christie and she does that as well. Um, so I, I would have wanted to do something ultimately 
similar, but yeah, I just just found different ways of um, different things to focus on, I guess, mm. probably. Yes, I quite like that idea. And, you know, there, there, there are the kissing trees and the various things that I've found out about. So those little kind of royal historical moments would have been fun to explore further. I was just thinking about the kissing trees and if they were going to come back in. It feels like that's either like the image on your book jacket or is the name <laughs> of the book. It's such a great image. <laughs> yeah, it's really special to think. I mean, can you imagine that, you know, there, there you are in your office and and you're looking out on the, the trees that your great grandmother planted um yeah really special it's really special. but I think huge responsibility there as well I mean that that's what I hope comes through in my my latest book in Murder Most Royal is and I don't think it's a great thing is is the sense of responsibility that people get when they inherit a lot of stuff is looking after it and a, a lot of the plot is actually based around that can be a bad thing as much as a good thing but it does interest me why what about it interests you what um What's it's just the way that you? it makes people behave, um, that they they feel that they have to look after things for the next generation and, and it's this huge weight put on them. And some people rise to it and some don't. Um, but there's, there's a big part of me that sort of thinks, well, shouldn't every generation start from scratch? I know I write about the royals, but a part of me does think, you know, just you should, you should be asked to... Um, uh, you should be rewarded on the basis of your own talents, I guess. And, and this whole business of... Um, inheritance yeah it should just be spread around and then we then we let the next generation sort it out for themselves that's so interesting but why I enjoy writing about my particular character is uh I think that inheritance can very much spoil a person Mm. and I think it is pretty astonishing that it didn't spoil the queen but I think it genuinely didn't um and she was treated like Shirley Temple from early childhood you know she was she was a baby celebrity um and it could have gone to her head at any point in her life and it kind of never did it's amazing do you have any sense of why does it just seems that somehow she magically rebuffed that or I think perhaps what really helped the queen was having her grandmother queen mary who I mention every now and again who really grounded her you know I, I love little stories like you know the um she'd take this sort of eight nine-year-old queen to the the ballet or something and there'd be a crowd absolutely you know pressed around all the press with their flash bulbs and the queen mary would say um, you know don't look around they're not here for you dear mm. and they were <laughs> but she um yeah she she sort of taught the queen this kind of this level of humility it's 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 about the job it's not about you and she just seemed to take it to heart um and perhaps also that she had this genuine passion for animals. I think that kind of maybe grounds people as well, you know, dogs and cats and, well, dogs particularly for her, mm. um, that, um, you know, they, they don't kind of care. I want, I don't have you for much longer and I want to make sure that we round out your unlived life because I think, um, I think we've got what often happens is that we're, we're bringing you, we're bringing you home to the writing a little bit, but in a, <laughs> in a different way. Um uh, so we're sort of oh, oh, well, actually if, if we if we don't want to bring me home the other thing that I would always love to have been is still a writer but it's a travel writer Oh, so I might have gone down that route I've always adored travel um, I'd have been a bit stuck with the pandemic obviously but given you know my, my lovely Chelsea life and my dinner parties and my connections um, uh, if I could have somehow used that to travel around new hotels maybe eco-friendly hotels around the world not big ones I've never been interested in that but but little family interesting family businesses doing amazing things around the world um yeah I'd have been super happy doing that okay if I could have found an outlet for that kind of writing that would be me this is kind of coming up the birth of blogs and vlogs and everything right at this time and you are you know the woman who used to travel with the queen so I think that's your niche right that's your that's your kind of persona online that's your cachet, which is that this, you know, you 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 got your traveling chops with Her Majesty herself, and now you're gonna- yeah. I learned everything I know on the Royal Yacht Britannia, and here I am now. <laughs> I think probably there's a book deal in there somewhere, presumably. Oh, that would be nice. Did you think? Yeah, I think you have lots of Instagram followers now. As we get closer <laughs> to the to the present moment, and then you're right. Actually, probably as we end up, the pandemic hits, which makes it a bit tricky for you to be a travel writer. What do you do? Hmm. 
Because, of course, in my real life, everybody just kind of joined me. Everybody was working from home and doing what I'd been doing all this time. Um, um, I panic, probably. I know. Don't panic. It's really hard. Um, Because I I didn't have to pivot the way a lot of people did, really. Um, I just had a five book deal. um, So (laughs) I had to I had to write and it suited me very well. But what happened over time was because I was getting less um, just stimulation and inspiration from outside. um, You know, I I love going out to galleries. I love traveling. I love meeting people. And that wasn't happening for any of us. And I think somebody else pointed out a lot of writers writing suffered later because we just we didn't have the same input that we'd had before. so it wasn't as easy as it seemed, but you know, I'm you've, I'm stuck. Okay. I don't know how I'd have coped with that. Maybe I hole up with some very rich friends I've made along the way and my my lovely job, um, and I and I manage to sort of um, write at the bottom of their garden, or maybe maybe another job that I would have loved. Um, maybe I take up gardening and I offer to do gardening for somebody. If I had had that idea, I would have been so happy. A friend of mine um, is, a, is a gardener. She's a Chelsea gold medal winning gardener called Joe. And um, my school, I did one of those school computer tests back in the 1980s when they were so basic. Oh, well. And they, you know, every question I answered with, I want to be a journalist. I want to be a writer. I want to write novels. It's like, you know, what do you want to do at university? I want to read English. I want to write novels. And then I got to the end and it said, you should be a prison warder or a landscape gardener. <laughs> and I've never forgotten because I was like, what? Um, but I do want to work in prisons, actually. I, as a writer, I would really, really love to work with prisoners on on their reading and writing. Okay. And I would really love to work in gardens. Being outside, working with your hands, um, that would have helped a lot through the, the whole perimenopausal thing I was talking about. So if I've got any sense at all, during the pandemic in my other life, um, I say to somebody who is doing their garden, well, I, maybe I, I get get together with my friend Joe um, and say, can I come and work for you as a manual labourer? Mm. Um, and I do that and I'm outdoors and I get really fit um, and I, I build, you know, I get, get my arm strength, which is really good for me as a menopausal woman. Um, and, um, and it's hugely good for my mental health and I make these beautiful things and... Um, yeah, and I get huge joy out of it. There we go. That's what I do. Oh, you've done so much. Look at the <laughs> look at the rich and varied varied life you've had. Um, in terms of romance, obviously we've we've completely killed off your husbands and your children. Um, does anyone else does anyone else resurface? You're in this amazing place. You've been traveling. You've been gardening. Um, are well, you I just- liked. I like to think that um, I meet my second husband anyway, Alex, because we were, I, I think we were destined to meet. We, we nearly met in Hong Kong in the 1980s, I think, or early 90s. We were both there at the same time. We didn't meet then. There were various times in our lives we could have met. Um, so I like to think that, you know, if, if we missed that that sliding door, there would have been another sliding door later on and I'd have, I'd have ended up with him anyway, because um, it feels like that was what was supposed to happen. Um, okay. But I think I'd, I'd be surrounded by by amazing, eligible men. So if, if not Alex, then somebody. And I, I mean, yes, maybe a um, a life of interesting gentlemen callers. That would be another unlived life. Well, there we go. May we all may we all be <laughs> so lucky. Sounds great. <laughs> There's a wonderful book called Harnessing Peacocks. I, was it by Mary? Oh, gosh, you wrote the Chamomile Lawn, Mary Wesley. Is that who I mean? Um, anyway, I recommend Harnessing Peacocks. It's a really lovely book about a woman who has about four gentleman callers and um, it all gets very confusing as they start to bump into each other. It's a little bit like the Mamma Mia plot in a way. Um, and I love it. So yes, maybe that. Brilliant. I love that. I love that. I love that. Okay. And then my final question for you is if you could bring one thing from your unlived life into your current life, and that can be something tangible, it can be a feeling, it can be an emotion, a thought, what might that one thing be? Well, I would have said 
my fabulous travel blog, <laughs> uh, my memories of staying in great hotels in Fiji. But um, but now that we've kind of taken it a bit further, I think it's my experience of gardening through the pandemic. There we go. That's what I would bring in. Okay. Fabulous. Well, good. I'm glad we, we gave you some gardening then. <laughs> this has been a total joy. Thank you so much, Sophia. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. I can't get the image of those kissing trees by the palace out of my mind. In part because they sound adorable, and in part because of this idea that Sophia linked with them of inheritance and what we passed down. We spoke quite a bit about inheritance, about the pressures that come with inheriting things, but also the extent to which maybe we should never inherit anything at all. This interests me for Sophia in part because of her creative focus on the monarchy, which is as inheritance-laden as it gets, but also because in her unlived life, she ended up without children, which resulted in all sorts of adventures and career changes and spare cash, but would mean that there was nobody obvious to inherit her earnings or her wisdom or her traits. Inheritance isn't just about money after all. But here's what I like best. Right at the end of her unlived life, Sophia turned to gardening, which means the ultimate recipient of her inheritance, the earth, arguably needed and deserved it more than anyone. From the image of those trees at the start of her episode to her life in the garden at the end, we really came full circle. And whether it's her work with plants and her unlived life or her work with words and her lived one, Sophia is definitely bequeathing us all something very positive indeed. If you're a fan of My Unlived Life, I'd be so grateful if you'd help spread the word by rating, reviewing, subscribing, or following wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, by sharing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.